Hello everyone. You may have noticed the letters VWC next to today's conversation. That stands for Levitical Wine Club. And these are industry-heavy episodes dealing with featured winemakers in my wine club. Enjoy. And had an idea, you know, when you're looking at this mountain of barrels and having this foundation on the pieces that can go there and what can we do to, to tweak it. And that's, I think, the most fun is just those how one, like 228 liters in 1,900 liters of wine can make the difference between magic and meh. All right, that was winemaker Ken Palo. He and his wife, Erica Landon, are the proprietors of Walter Scott, which is a winery that makes some of the finest Pinot Noir and Chardonnay in the world. And that's saying a lot anyways, but the fact that they're in Oregon's Willamette Valley is a very emphatic statement. Um, our project in collaboration with Ken and Erica deals exclusively with Chardonnay from the Eola Amity Hills and slightly outside those confines. And we produced a, a cuvee this year in vintage 2018 that we are incredibly proud of. So we're going to go through that project for you and that collaboration. And as we talk about each vineyard, it's a multi-parcel cuvee. Uh, we're also going to get to know Ken and Erica through those vineyards. So it's kind of a, a story of their beginnings and a story of their future. One of the great attributes um, of Walter Scott, specifically Ken and Erica, outside of them being salt of the earth and like family to me, is the fact that there's a relentless desire for improvement, a relentless desire to not rest on their laurels, but to continually push the envelope, both in the vineyard and in the cellar. And so that's kind of a resounding theme throughout our conversation today. And uh, so hope you enjoy this podcast. Cheers. Well, I think this is the quietest this house has been. Yes. I guess we should start with, what, what vintage is this for you with Walter Scott? Uh, 11th, 11th vintage. Uh, 09 was the inaugural at uh, Patricia Green Cellars, trading labor for space with Jim and Patty, who I'd, well, I'd known them since 95, and Erica had known them since, I don't know, several years before that as well. And uh, yeah, they gave us a little corner of their winery for us to uh, make some wine and work me to death. And uh, yeah, so this is 11th total for Walter Scott, and then in this facility, our eighth. So you're roughly 60% Chardonnay to 40% Pinot Noir. Yeah, with just a tiny bit of Gamay and Aligoté in there, and I think that's a good balance. It may swing a little bit more than 60%, depending on vintage. We have one vineyard in 19 that was down a little bit, actually three vineyards that were slightly lower yields than what we projected but still in balance. And then with Kusa, we have a site that's not in full production yet. So that will probably add another six tons to mm -hmm. our total production. And that little bit more Kusa will probably take our production closer to 65%. Okay. So zooming in on 18 and talking about our cuvee, this is probably the most fun I've had blending. I, I have a lot of fun doing this, but totally. It is, so for those of you who don't know, uh, Ken and Erica have a daughter. They have a very busy winery practice. They do practically everything themselves with a small um, harvest team. 
and people are coming in and out of this winery on the daily <laughs> visiting, which is yeah. a good thing. Yeah, it's great. You know, the, the wines are, are doing quite well, but you guys have an insanely hectic pace. And so often when Ken and I, you have three dogs and a cat too, which adds yeah. to the mix and chickens. Your boyfriend, Bob. So, Whatever idyllic vision you're picturing in your head, it's that's exactly what it is. And usually Erica is not um, traditionally involved because no. where you are, another person has to be somewhere else. Yeah. And I think in 18, it was really fun because oh, was, all, everybody, including Lucy, you're uh, five. Is she five or six? Uh, she'll tell you five and a half, soon okay. to be six. Yeah, she's just riding around on her scooter in the winery. So yeah. all, everybody, including the dogs and the cat, were all yeah. concentrated in the winery at the same time. Yeah. And all the things that are Walter Scott were all happening in at one moment because it's usually kind of chaos. And It, it sounds silly, but I think that collaborative element of at least having Erica in the mix really totally. really helped this this. Yeah. Well, first of all, it was a lot more fun, but second Way of all... Way more fun. And she's got an awesome palette, and, you know... Uh, exactly. Yeah, we, and we went... Th we, you always come in with, like, a, there's at least one barrel, maybe two, that you come in, and you're like, this is what we're going to build around. And in some years, you're like, we're totally going to do this, and then we put it together, and like, oh, that wine is terrible. <laughs> and this time... It was, it, we've done it so often and the energy of that day was great and it was pretty easy. And, you know, just that little bit of, of fine tuning. I mean, it was long, it was like three hours and we, we had At layered least. from previous visits, ba yep. you know, based on an initial selection. Mm -hmm. But okay, so let's, let's talk about- And Erica about saying, don't let Brian have the best barrel. I'm like, <laughs> well, we're gonna get him a really good barrel and there's a couple, it was, it was also, you know, because we have been busy. I mean, we've ta we have a 6,000 case winery that is just the two of us. And, you know, Erica and I taste through every barrel together, but there are certain times where, you know, we haven't been able to get out there and taste everything together before you show up and we're like, okay, we're this and this. And Erica's like, well, what about this and this? And But this time we had a really good idea and we had some stuff that we... 2017 was a tough finish for me because we had, I mean, we were 32 barrels short for Chardonnay and we had... Chardonnay everywhere, but 18, I felt like we had just taken another step in really fine-tuning what we do. Mm -hmm. And we knew every barrel head to toe and every site, we've finally like really found our rhythm with all of them and keying in on their personalities and had an idea, you know, when you're looking at this mountain of barrels and having this foundation on the pieces that can go there and what can we do to, to tweak it. And that's, I think, the most fun is just those how one, like 228 liters in 1,900 liters of wine can make the difference between magic and meh. So talk to me about 18. Kind of a classic. Well, actually, sorry, 19 is a classic, but 18 is like, I'm sorry, I've got 19 in my head. 19 is like in your head because we just tasted a bunch yeah. of it. But uh, let's 18, talk about 18. So very similar growing conditions to 2017. Kind of more typical Willamette Valley growing season, still warm and dry during the growing season, but half of average rainfall. Bud break the same, spring weather pretty similar, 18 and 17. Uh, June, as we expect, a little bit of rains, but it didn't affect yields as it has in the past. Usually during flowering in June, we'll see yields get cut in half when it used to be cold in June. Now we've been pretty consistent and flowering has been very successful and relatively consistent crops going back 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. Heat spikes, which we're continuing to expect in the summer, 
got up to 100 during the Pinot Noir celebration, so last week of July. Stayed warm, but cooled off significantly in September. But the, the biggest difference is uh, lack of rainfall, so less than half of average. And with the warm growing season, less water. Um, with Pinot Noir, the big difference, thicker skin. So the people that love Pinot Noir that's got lots of color, 2018 is for you. Um, a lot of structure. The whites, uh, Chardonnay-wise, uh, yields were lower on purpose. And we've talked about that. We can go into that further. But a relatively easy vintage. You know, the cool conditions, us along with some of our friends who like to pick on the early side, had great acidity, alcohols are in balance. We didn't have anything over 13.6 for Pinot Noir. Chardonnay highest is like 13.2. Not that alcohol is everything, we just like fresher. Were there any amendments in the vineyard that you were doing actively in 18 that helped you, you know, preserve that acidity in a warm, dry year? Well, we've talked about us, you know, pursuing lower yields, and we—that's—that's that's the one thing I think that we did to preserve acidity with our growers and all of our growers. Since we're on acreage contracts, we're willing to work with us on that. So we shoot thinned aggressively early in the season, pruned shorter so as to set our yield low at the beginning, so the vine isn't wasting energy uh, trying to ripen fruit. I think people in the valley tend to hang a bigger crop thinking they're delaying ripeness and getting more hang time, which in cooler vintages that makes sense, but in warmer vintages I don't understand it. And I think you're overworking the vine and then shocking it when you cut off. You know, in some cases there's been times where some of our vineyards are hanging seven tons to the acre and we have to cut off over half of that just to get down to three, three and a half tons per acre. I think it's not smart and I think you can set the stage early. Not only are you giving the vine less work to do and helping it be more efficient, but once you get behind in the vineyard, you're you're behind all season. Some people are dropping fruit later in the season, but mm -hmm. the vine has already given its energy to the grapes at that point. Mm -hmm. It's been evenly distributed over a crop that you just reduced versus when the vine is focused on kind of vegetative growth earlier in the year and you drop fruit then. Now, once that switch happens and the energy is focused on fruit, yeah. there's less fruit there. So all the love, let's say, goes straight yeah. towards the smaller crop that you've already pre-selected. So. Yeah. What did you notice in terms of pHs in 18 with that? You know, we had all the vineyards we worked with, all of them were willing to work with this on this experiment. Ian Birch said I should experiment on a couple of vineyards, so we just hard charged and did all of them. Mm -hmm. So when we picked, one thing we noticed, we had the flavor that we desire, we had potential alcohols that we desire. pHs were in the low threes, so for us that's anywhere between 3, 3.05, 3.1, and Malik's were around two, so lower. We're talking about Chardonnay, right? Chardonnay, yes. Yeah. For us, we like that, we like that feeling, we like that sense of minerality, lower pH wines, but I think our wines will also age really well. They, they showed it at the end, and you could see a lot of canopies starting to fail, and canopy starting to yellow and I attribute it. Obviously the dry conditions of the season contributed to some of the canopy struggling. Some younger vines, maybe not appropriate rootstock for the soil, maybe soil that shouldn't be planted at all. And then you just had these, uh, this fruit that, that was good, but could have been better if farmed and, and 
with a different mindset. Okay, so essentially the, the decisions you made early to, to drop fruit, mm-hmm. again, focus the energy on the grapes mm-hmm. once the yields had been re- reduced early in the season. So yeah. now that, that arc of ripening is quicker, so the acid mm-hmm. has less time to fall out. out. Mm-hmm. And so you end up with really good numbers going into the cellar when you're fermenting fruit and trying and, to create the style that you want to. Yeah, and you know, th- there's, there's style, but there's also you know, our number one goal in making Depending on the vintage, we could make as many as six or seven different Chardonnay. We can make six or seven different Pinot Noir. The goal is to show off what those places have to say. You know, numbers are great, but the personality and the identity of these places, you know, we tasted just a few minutes ago and you're like, Freedom Hill is always kind of has this thing. Seven Springs has this thing. And for us, we want to show that off. So it's not, I mean, we don't make wine by recipe. We subtle adjustments every year so as to show off the place. And you know, it was great to see that the numbers were where we want, but the intensity almost amplifying the personalities of those individual places was what was gratifying. You've clearly started to get to know these vineyards, and we should talk about the ones that we chose and selected. Uh, let's go Seven Springs. Uh, iconic. Uh, you know, that vineyard was planted in 1983. Always viewed it as a great site, definitely for Pinot Noir. Uh, my old boss made Chardonnay from there. Uh, Eviland comes in 2007, I think really, in my opinion, set the stage for what will be the next 10, 15, 20 years of, I think, some of the best Chardonnay on the planet. Um, you can't deny Dominique Lafon and his talents and Isabelle Meunier and the team at Eviland doing what they do. So Seven Springs, great site for Chardonnay, great site for Pinot Noir. They planted an additional 14 acres next to Bjornsson as the property kind of drops down East Slope and then cuts across a ravine. And I had been asking Raj and Sashi for Chardonnay from Seven Springs since 2014. Mm. 14, 15, 16, one to two, maybe three emails a year, gently nudging harassing. And then finally, in 2017, uh, this new block called the South Ridge, uh, south, slight east exposure, volcanic, gentle slope, uh, some of that came into production and they were willing to sell us some. Uh, they also sell a little bit to Fela, Antica Terra, Angela, State, Seth Morgan Long, so a, a lot of people that are really committed to mm-hmm. Chardonnay. And we took, you know, I, I like to co-ferment. I believe in sexu- selection of and showing off place through diversity. I tried to do that there. They're like, we don't want to do that. So I said, hell with it. I'm just going to take the biggest block on the property. And it happened to be in the northwest corner, slightly cooler, and come to find out by accident, it's the rockiest section on the property sitting on Nakaya. Brilliantly farmed by Jessica Cortell and the team there. And Jessica's commitment to her craft, take it to another level. And they did all the little things I asked for, and you and I have walked that block a number of times, and you show up and you're like, this is perfect. I'm sure Raj and Sasha are gonna be ecstatic that I took a barrel of Seven Springs and blended into a Cuvée <laughs> Vinical multi-vineyard blend. Well, you know, blends can sometimes be a little more compelling. I mean, we, we all love single vineyards. We talk about Prime Cruz and Grand Cruz and Burgundy and single vineyards garnering more money, but sometimes a blend can capture a lot of different elements and really showcase a place. Thanks, Ken. I feel better about myself. You should. <laughs> so, but I think the, the Seven Springs Vineyard, you did a great job kind of explaining some of its history with Evening Land, is also a great segue mm-hmm. into some of your backstory um, because <laughs> you joined the Evening Land team back in the old days. Mm-hmm. 
Um, maybe you can kind of talk about that so people have a little bit more of a granularity with your sure. background. So prior to working for Evenland, I worked for St. Innocent for a number of years and Vondegaard. Uh, 2009, when Erica and I started Walter Scott, uh, I had met uh, Mark Tarlov the previous spring, founder uh, of Eveningland, and he sent me a, what I thought was a cryptic email talking about this and that, and my wife, understanding things better and having a different vision than me, she's like, he's offering you a job, dum-dum, and so uh, offering me a job to help come in and help with fixing distribution channels, because I had been doing a lot of sales prior to that. What and year was this? This would, would be November of 2009. So we had just finished uh, Harvest at uh, PGC, British Green Cellars, making our wines, and we were back out selling, working for the dis distributor importer I was working for, Erica doing her, she was still at 1001 at the time. Mm -hmm. And they offered me a job and I started in January of 2010. You know, selfishly, it was an opportunity to work with Dominic Lafon. We were going to be able to make our wines there with no overhead, and I was going to be able to learn from arguably one of the best winemakers on the planet. Work for this amazing vineyard, which was, you know, my favorite vineyard while working at St. Innocent for 11 vintages. And, uh, you know, so many great things came out of it. You know, we were able to continue to build our brand. The best crew of people I've ever worked with at Harvest, uh, 2011. Uh, Will Hamilton, who made his wines at our place, my best friend Ian Birch, uh, we became buddies there, uh, Ryan Hannaford, and this amazing team. And so, yeah, I was fortunate to work there for two years. I feel like I learned more in the two years that I was there about winemaking, viticulture, uh, cellar practices in, in those two years, probably more than the previous 10. And one of the things that Dominique, I think, got great joy in was blending. Right. Because in Burgundy, you can't. By law, if you're going to blend, you have to, if you declassify something, you know, it's going to go from Premier Crew down to Village. So you're not really blending. You're just like, this is what we have. This is what we're doing. Uh, if you could take one thing from your experience with Dominique, what would it be? Details. That man has been running Comte Lafon since 83. And he's still obsessed with getting better and making better wine. And I tell this story all the time. It doesn't get old for me. He was asked at lunch by an intern what was the best wine he'd ever tasted, and he's like, I haven't tasted it yet. And then the intern asked, what's the best wine you've ever made? And he said, I haven't made it yet. Well, you know, you look back in the 80s, and it was guys like Lafon and Rumier, and you could say that the golden age of Burgundy was really the 90s, and I think a lot of that can be attributed to that next generation that shared information, talked to each other, and talked to producers in other villages, and traveled around the world to learn. And uh, I think that was, was but a, it's, a great yeah, thing. It's really gratifying and disarming when, like, kind of a hero and a legend, you know, and a teacher is also the student, you know, and yes. relentlessly trying to learn with you. Relentless. You know? Yeah. So I kind of built stuff around a vineyard called Justice, which is, as we're looking out your terraces right out in the vista over yep. here. Let's talk about Justice, because that was kind of um, a good chunk of the blend and, and kind of the building blocks. Absolutely. Um, you know, Justice, uh, f owned by Pat Dudley and Ted Castile, farmed by Ted from the beginning. Uh, they offered us fruit in 16 for Pinot Noir and then in 17 for Chardonnay. 18 yields in a better position. It's a 
lovely vineyard, fourth vintage certified organic, and uh, it's a block that we split with Bethel Heights. And thankfully, Ted was nice enough to give Ben and I every other row, so we get a uniformity of this block from east to west. Uh, but it is, one, it's older vines. I mean, it's planted in 99. Uh, we've stepped away from some older vine sites outside of the Ola Amity Hills to focus in on this place that we believe is one of the best places on the planet for Chardonnay. And Justice happens to be right there and 20-year-old vines and, you know, you can make, and we've made great wine from younger vines, but there is an old vine thing that uh, is, is pretty unique. And being at this elevation in the Yola Hills, it's sedimentary soil in an area that everyone expects to be volcanic. So I think you get this interesting juxtaposition of the Eola Amity Hills thing, those influences of the Van Duzer winds, the acidity, tension, freshness, and then that kind of sedimentary tickle, minerality, savory quality from that site. And it's right in front of us. Is that on the Mimi program of... of it was for a couple vintages uh, in 2018 with Mimi continuing to focus on Hopewell. He did do some cultivation to open things up a little bit for when it did rain. Mm-hmm. Um, it hasn't been irrigated in years. It's got irrigation. You walk through the vineyard and you see a lot of the plastic pipes and stuff are broken, so there's no way to irrigate it. And at 20 years old, those roots are 15 feet easily. So organic undervine cultivation, he does still do a little bit of tilling out there. Okay. Um, so let's talk about the, the other components of this. So we, yep. we started with a couple justice barrels and, and, you know, reduction is a, is maybe an over talked about thing, but I, I think that, um, there's always shades of gray with it when, it, when a wine has like a really pretty reduction that mm-hmm. just occurs naturally. You know, as a frame, I'm I'm not af- afraid of that, and nope. so I, certainly justice. Nope. I think of all the barrels in eighteen had this gorgeous reduction yep. Yep. in barrel, and then so tr- saying, okay, can these beautiful barrels be actually accentuated and made better mm-hmm. by maybe layered? Some, yeah, exactly. Yep. Seven Springs was in the mix. We yep. we threw in that badass 350 liter. Mm-hmm. And then what was the last vineyard? Uh, Ex Novo. Yeah. So uh, amazing site. Also Eola Amity Hills. We've, again, this is another story we've told a bunch. And, you know, Craig Williams, winemaker Joseph Phelps for 30 years, incredibly humble. He was looking for property in the Eola Hills. He almost bought the plot that's, that is now Lingua Franca. And so for years he looked for property up here, obsessed with the potential of the Willamette Valley searching for cool climate area where he could grow Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. And he found this site, walked it, and thought to himself it reminded him of Montmarche, where Montmarche sits and the comb that goes up to San Alban funnels down cool breezes. Ex Novo sits, southeast exposure, Holmes Gap, which is this little valley here, which is basically the end of the Van Duzer Corridor, funneling cool breezes past this site with the southeast exposure. And Craig believing in not having monocultures within vineyards and strength through diversity through the idea of selection massal and that there's too much monocultures throughout agriculture, period, planted this site. It's only two acres, one of the highest density plantings in the valley at 3,000 vines per acre. 
and somewhere between 15 to 20 clones uh, with the idea being Selection Masal. And his vision was that he would sell that fruit to, it would all go to one winery. And we were luckily introduced to him in 2013 by Sterling Fox. Mm -hmm. And uh, Craig liked what we were doing and offered us the fruit and we've worked with him ever since. And it's, uh, it's a very special site. Uh, there are more sites like it now. At the time, it was the most unique planting probably for sure in the Willamette Valley, maybe the most unique planting because of its diversity on the West Coast. Um, but now I think he's another guy who has inspired producers, farmers to look differently at soil and plant through diversity. You've got Josh Bergstrom has planted some mixed clone blocks. Lingua Franca has at least one. Uh, Luisa Ponzi at Ponzi. A number of producers are looking at this and trying to get out of their own way and stop thinking, clone this, rootstock that, and plant through diversity and try and create, you know, diversity of agriculture even if it is, you know, just growing vines. Yeah, I, you know, the 18X Novo, I think, f hit another level for me. I'm sure it, it did for you too. And I feel like it's, it, there's been a, a sl an even more of an understanding of how to work with that vineyard and all its different clones, which mm -hmm. are amazing. And if you visit the vineyard, it's just like, it almost looks like completely different Chardonnay from row to row in terms of the size totally. of the berries, the amount of clusters, the yield. Because you have all this clonal diversity of Chardonnay, you end up with a really complex wine and very different ripening schedules mm -hmm. from block to block in the vineyard, which also creates very interesting textural components. I and mean, this wine is a laser in 18 yeah. in Chablisian, but I feel like that kind of monster of, of diversity and complexity is great, but takes a while to wrangle and understand. Oh, and it, took, it took years, you know, 2013, because we couldn't afford all of it. You know, Craig, Craig was used to dealing in Napa with five acre blocks. And here, us cute little Oregonians, acre of this, acre of that. We couldn't afford all of it at, at the price he wanted, and it was validated the price he wanted per ton, so we split it with two other producers. And then, you know, our goal was to ultimately be able to take the vineyard per acre and have all of it, you know, dividing up 15 to 20 different clones that are all planted by row three ways is nearly impossible. So 13, 14, and 15 were good learning experiences about what the vineyard is, how we can farm it, what it's going to yield, but it wasn't until 2016 when we were in a fortunate position to take the entire site that we really got a sense of what Ex Novo truly is because we had all of it. Mm. You know, there's no way, as I mentioned earlier, there's no way that the two rows of X clone was going to be divided up amongst the three producers. And that one little piece, like we talked about earlier, it's like I've got 2,000 liters of wine, I add in a 228 liter barrel, it changes the entire personality of that right. cuvee. Same thing's happening in this vineyard. That little extra tickle of acidity, that little, you know, fruit note, that little aromatic high note could be those other two rows on the west side that was going to someone else that wasn't really making their mm. bottling of Ex Novo complete. And now, you know, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, that's six vintages in, only three of those did we have all of it. Now in the fourth year, getting a good sense of what the place, what the personality is, and now we're fine tuning it. And I think 18 was that vintage where we knew what the yield needs to be, we did the things we needed to do, and 
The weather god smiled on you. The weather god smiled on us, and that site just went to uh, the level that we'd hoped it to be from the beginning. And that really, for our cuvee, like, you have Justice, which has this really pretty reduction, Mm -hmm. and you have, you know, Seven Springs, which also was really pretty and just Mm -hmm. added another complex layer in there. But then you have Ex Novo, which is like this penetrating laser beam that Mm -hmm. just went right through the middle of that prettiness you know, elongated it, made it linear and tighter and drove the energy of that wine into another stratosphere. And I was so happy that those pieces, which sounded good on paper, but yep. barrels don't always like each other as no, we know. And we've seen that. And, yeah. and of all the barrels that we thought we would add, I went over and it wasn't a neutral barrel or a once fill. It was a new barrel that was just on fire. And that one piece just added that dimension. Right, and so the, the club shipment is going to be unfined, unfiltered, a very small, I mean, we're not even really adding any sulfur heading to, to bottle other than nope. what it's seen after, after uh, Mallow. And so, you know, here we are really going into another dimension mm-hmm. of winemaking. So in, in, in 19, so first of all, I'm... I'm elated about the the cuvee we made i think if for people who remember the 16 bunker hill which is yep. one of the most legendary wines um i've tasted out of barrel and then that you put together in bottle for for us i feel like this is on that level absolutely and, and it's the most the least amount of intervention at all um, for sure of of any probably any chardonnay that that you've made. So I'm really excited to see how it turns out. We're bottling when? That wine will be bottled on December 13th. We've talked about the 18s and how I feel about them. I think it is a vintage that will benefit from time in the cellar, for sure. If you like your Chardonnay tight, slightly reductive with subtlety of fruit and head-ripping acidity, Mm -hmm. open them up. Yeah. But if you want to see, I think, five to 15 years with our 18s, depending again on what you like in Chardonnay, I don't think there's a problem if stored properly. Awesome. And that Cuvée Viticol is going to be pretty bulletproof. I mean, that, I mean, uh, I should, t- I should tell the story. The I should so, so, uh, it's ridiculous. So this, this was when the wine was at like, like barely any sulfur at all too. Was it right after Mallow or when was it? No, it was last this it was summer. in the summer. When we put the cuvee together, we hadn't even put it to tank yet. Yeah. So I just pulled, and the thing is, it was, you know, pulling a composite that is percentage exact when you've got a couple of 500s, a couple of 350s, and a couple of 228s. I am admittedly a little bit anal, so I did take what were exact percentages of each, but still, it's it's so hard to tell when you don't have the leaves from the bottom and is the wine different as it gets closer to the lees bed? And once you put it to tank is when you really see it come together. So this was a good, pretty exact composite. And you were heading out to high you. It had to be. Uh, yeah. It was, it was August, right? It was August. We had, we, I head out to high you and was meant to, to try Nate on the wine. And then he was out of town. I'm like, Oh, well I'll, I'll get to it later. And maybe I'll just, you know, sample it over three days. Just forgot about it. I got, Buried with work, and then I go into buried. The, go into the closet <laughs> a week later, and there it is. You know, kind of at slightly under room temperature in this glass vial, mm-hmm. 
I'm like, this thing has to be toast because it was half full. I had tasted it at the wine. It was half full. You took what you're like, can I take this? I'm like, yeah, just bring the jar back. And uh, I'm not sure you brought the jar back, but. I didn't bring the jar back. Yeah, it's all right. I'm not giving it back. Um, so we, 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 we pour, I poured it for myself and was like, holy shit, this wine is unbelievable. And then I poured it for Nate and he just looks at me and goes, oh, well, that's one of the best Oregon Chardonnays I've ever had. And that was that. And so, yeah, in terms of how this wine is going to age over time, I'm, I'm not worried. I think, yeah. you know, the 16 Bunker Hill is bulletproof too. And, and the 18 for all its naturalness will be just as bulletproof on pure merit. Yeah. I think it's going to be uh, a pretty special bottling. When was it last spring that we tasted the Bunker Hill? I can't remember when we last tasted the, that. We, I'm just burying have, that wine. Have, I mean, our library is tiny anyway. I think we have maybe I feel like wine's going through or 16 a, bottles in it. But. Yeah. I feel like wine's going through a dumb phase. Like it's actually is getting it? tighter and angrier. Green. And then it'll, Green. it'll, you know, awake from its slumber and unfold in new magical ways. So, um, but Ken, you're making great wine. And I, I think we'll Thank kind, you. Of, kind of continue with the conversation of of regenerative agriculture that a lot of people uh, are tracking on, all, all our wine club members. And mm-hmm. obviously we sit down every time we meet, which is four or five times a year, and have very hard and pointed conversations about where we'd like to go and where we're starting to see. And so when you mentioned Kusa earlier, mm-hmm. and that vineyard site and Kevin Chambers' commitment to wanting to um, to go no-till, there's some own-rooted Chardonnay on the property, a lot of interesting permaculture amendments as he gets this young vine site established i think there's great opportunity for us in the future yeah i mean we've talked about trying to you know we obviously like doing our our blends and coming up with these unique cuvées but you and i have talked about finding a site i mean you basically have your own tank now in the cellar um you're welcome Thank uh you. but finding a site that we could like fine tune and work on and do as a single vineyard moving forward. And it seemed like Kusa was a logical starting point, a younger vine vineyard, obviously first guy in Kevin chambers to embrace biodynamics in the Valley when he owned resonance, brilliant farmer. And what he's attempting to achieve at Kusa, I think is going to, again, take farming practices in the Willamette Valley to another level. Uh, whether it's, you know, people like Mimi pushing biodynamic, uh, organic, uh, no-till. I mean, you, you, you have to look at what your site needs and adjust to it. But, you know, the, the level and standard of farming in this valley continues to get higher and higher and higher. And Kevin at Kusa, you know, when he told me he wanted to fight biology with biology because everyone's like, you know, fighting biology with chemistry, it was one of those crazy moments. Because we still want to learn. I mean, we, we know enough about farming to be dangerous, but, you know, those guys uh, are only going to help us learn and get better at what we do in moving forward with what we hope Walter Scott will be and farming our own place someday. To be continued as 2019 shapes up. 2019. All right, that concludes today's episode. If you liked it, please hit the subscribe button. And if you have any comments, we welcome those as well. Thank you so much. We'll be back again soon.